Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Real Leaders Podcast. This is your host, Sue Heilbronner. And for the next three episodes, we're going to do something completely different. Well, it's not completely different, but it's a little bit different. Instead of doing the usual interviewing an amazing, authentic CEO and hearing the story behind the story, the next three episodes are focused on a topic that is pretty near and dear to my heart. Literally, it's kidney donation. And I view living kidney donation as one of the biggest opportunities to change the world that's available to all of us. And so I just want to talk some about it. And the reason is that I know that talking about living kidney donation actually leads to more living kidney donations. And there are 100,000 people out in the United States alone who need a kidney donation. And maybe it's something you're thinking about while you're listening. So here's what we're going to do. Three episodes on three different perspectives of living kidney donation. First, someone who received an altruistic donation from a kidney donor he didn't know. Second, someone who gave a non-directed kidney donation. And third, someone who knows just about everything you need to know about how to think of or make a living kidney donation. This is episode one. And our guest on episode one is that recipient of a living kidney donation. You'll hear the whole story. The recipient is my brother, Mike Heilbronner. Now we'll turn over to my interview with Mike. I want to welcome Mike Heilbronner, who has a really wonderful insight to share in this conversation and frankly is the inspiration for this conversation. It'll probably come as a surprise to you that we are related. Mike is my brother, younger by a couple years. Hi, Mike. Hello. Thanks for joining me. So Mike, I'd love for you to share a couple minutes on your journey with kidney disease and your own receipt of a living donor kidney. Sure. Well, um, I was born with a genetic kidney disorder called polycystic kidney disease. Uh, it's a disease that my father had and I inherited from him. It results in cysts growing on your kidneys over the period of your lifetime. While the disease varies from person to person, in many people, the cysts grow large enough so that your kidneys also grow extremely large, but the cysts themselves grow large enough and in quantity grow to a point that your kidney function starts to be reduced. And that reduction just occurs over time and continues and for someone like me, it happened rapidly enough where by the time I was 46, 47, my kidney function was reduced to a level that was worthy of getting on a transplant waiting list. Um, and then ultimately to a point that I was almost in need of dialysis before I got very lucky and was able to find a living kidney donor who ended up giving me a transplanted kidney. Uh, and that ended the, uh, what was a long saga, that was the short version, but, um, you know, years of seeing doctors and years of kidney decline and things like that and tons of testing around getting qualified for a transplant and then trying to find matching donors and things like that all took a very long time. Thanks, Mike. And Mike, just so people understand this, I think a lot of people think that when you land on the list, you get a kidney. Most people probably know, maybe they don't, that that list is about 95,000 people now. Can you describe your mindset when you got on the list? Yeah. Um, 
the list is very long. When I, when I got on the list, I was told that I would be waiting anywhere from a year and a half, I guess, to about three years. And these lists are organized and administered on a state-by-state -state basis. So I live in Oregon. Uh, that's the rough timeline for someone in my situation in Oregon. It can be much longer in other states. And I think there's probably a few that are shorter. But that's a pretty fair amount of time. In other words, it's, it's, it's a common amount of time or more to be told you will wait. And now many people are told that when their kidneys have already stopped working, um, because some people have disorders or problems that cause their kidneys to stop working immediately, unlike my situation, which happened over many years. So I had a lot of time to get ready and I was able to qualify for a transplant before my kidney function was so bad that I needed to go on dialysis. Most people are not in that situation. Most people get on the list and their kidneys are not working at all, and they already are, are doing or in dialysis to help them stay alive. Um, so then they have this long wait, and needless to say, um, it's uh, a little nerve-wracking. It's emotionally trying. What it caused me to do was really think creatively with my wife and family and friends around how I could somehow short-circuit the long list by finding a living kidney donor. And so we did kind of a marketing campaign with social media and otherwise lots of outreach Michael, to try to find. Yeah, let me, I just want to jump in on that before we get to what you all did and just ask, what's wrong with dialysis? I mean, what was your mindset when you didn't have a living donor? You didn't know that that was certain. Why were you averse to dialysis? What was your thought process? Well, there's a number of reasons. Some of them are health-related and some are almost sort of logistical in nature. Dialysis helps you stay alive. In other words, it cleans out your blood in the same way that a kidney would, but it's an artificial process with a machine. And for most people, it calls for you to be sitting in a hospital bed or a chair in a facility where you have your blood being removed uh, in a sense, cleaned by a machine and then put back into your body and you're sitting there for a good five hours, three days a week. So that's obviously a time challenge when it comes to family and work and social life and other things like that. Uh, but more importantly, while dialysis does the job of cleaning your blood, there are a number of side effects that are negative. Um, first of all, you're already exhausted because your kidneys don't work. And while the kidney dialysis process helps you stay alive, it doesn't resolve that problem. It's not like you have a healthy kidney or anything like that when you do dialysis. So you spend days really, really tired all the time. And I don't know the full details of this, but dialysis also has long-term health impacts that tend to reduce the length of people's lives over time. And again, I don't know all the science around that, but just it basically keeps you alive, but it doesn't necessarily keep you alive in the same way you would have been if you had a healthy kidney. I see. Thanks for sharing that. So I interrupted you, and you were about to talk about what you did to try to identify a living donor. Can you talk us through that? Yeah. So again, I, I had a disorder that kind of aggregated over time. So I had a long time to think about this. Eventually, you get to a point where your kidneys are not working uh, enough that you do qualify for a transplant, and you go on that list I mentioned. So I was not yet on dialysis at that point when I was given that kind of one and a half to three year time frame for a donor. And so along with my wife, Jennifer, who was extremely helpful in this process and you, of course, um, and some friends did, uh, we created a website 
Um, and it had a lot of content about me, about the disease, about donation, and really trying to solicit people to consider donating and giving them resources to get educated and numbers and contact information for the doctors who do the testing for donors. We did social media outreach, and I even had a relationship with the fan support group for the Portland Timbers. Um, I had a working relationship with them, and they have a huge list of people that they communicate with by email and social media, and they did some outreach for me. We looked at this as kind of a numbers and marketing game, almost called a business approach, but that was the idea, Uh, getting a message out, letting people know and educating them, and trying to find someone who has the ability uh, and desire to go through the process of giving a kidney to someone while they're alive. And so that's what we did. And that outreach actually was very productive. I I got a donor kidney from someone who was living, and that happened uh, because of the social media outreach that we did. So a good friend was in New York City. She was reading Facebook and saw my post, and she was staying with one of her best friends, and she happened to mention it to this woman, Vicky, who was one of her best friends who lives in New York, who I didn't know. Um, And Vicky heard this. Uh, found my information and didn't even tell her friend, the one we know, but called up uh, my doctors and started the process. And ultimately, she qualified and was the donor, which is incredible, uh, really a miracle. But even I, I ended up finding out later that a bunch of other people had called the doctors to potentially donate. And one of them was someone who was contacted by the Portland Timbers fan support group that I mentioned. So this is someone who was extremely disconnected from me saw the message, and put his name in to be a potential donor, which, of course, was incredible. The whole thing was incredible. You know, our philosophy was we need to reach as many people as possible, and we need to have a clear message and an appeal, and that's the best way to have this happen. And I got lucky. It just worked out. But I still think that's the right approach for someone who is trying to do this. Mike, first of all, who are the Portland Timbers? Oh, come on, Sue. The Portland Timbers are Portland's, <laughs> Portland's men's professional soccer team. We also have a women's team. Awesome. Um, Thank you. And I had, I had done some legal work for them. And so I was friends with the people who run it. And they have just a huge network of thousands of people. Um, awesome. So. That was incredibly generous. And I just wonder, I think I recall us talking about this, but what was it like for you to go so public about something fairly intimate? Gosh, um, Very, very difficult. I mentioned before that my wife Jennifer and you and some others were very instrumental in helping this process uh, start and get executed. Um, So Jennifer did most of the website. Uh, You and other people helped a lot with the social media ideas and outreach. All of that happened probably one, two, three months after it could have, because I was very reluctant. Someone, I don't, I don't, can't explain why, but there's some kind, of, at least for me, some kind of embarrassment around asking for this kind of help. It, it's just such a big ask, or you feel like it's such a big ask. And even though asking has no impact on anyone, uh, it doesn't harm you, it doesn't harm them. All they're doing is receiving a message. It still felt like I was imposing on people, and that also felt a lot like I was disclosing something about myself that was very private and I was very uncomfortable with that. Most people had no idea that I had this disease. And so, you know, we're probably really reaching, 
I don't know, hundreds, maybe even more than a thousand people. Um, uh, I had to some fear around that. I, I can't really explain it because uh, I don't think it's warranted at all, but I don't think I'm alone in that regard. I have now since learned of other people who have experienced the same thing and have had friends help them through the process. So a good friend of mine from law school was someone who had a kid, has a kidney disease, and she did the exact same thing we did. She created a website for her friends. She did the social media outreach. I don't know the result of that right now. I think she's still waiting. But the point being, there's some kind of fear, reluctance, embarrassment, a combination of emotions that come with both this disclosure, but much more importantly, the ask. It's not like asking someone for a dollar, of course. It's such, it feels so big because it is so big. But the ask itself is really nothing. The thing you're asking for is big, but it's hard to digest that when you're in, when you're in the shoes that I was in at least. It's much easier for me to see that now when I'm advising other people who are trying to ask me about how to do it. I try to explain, hey, it's just an ask. But again, I had already gone through the process. It's easy for me to say that now. Right. And on that day, had you met your kidney donor, Vicki, before the day of your surgery? Yes, I had. Um, so little backstory on when you, when you decide you're willing to donate as a living donor, the first thing you do is call the doctors of the transplant, the person need, who needs a transplant, and they start a testing process. That testing process takes a very long time. Uh, you have to be very healthy to be able to donate, and there's just a number of tests they go through to qualify you in a sense. And so she did, I think, three, four, five months worth of tests over a period of time, obviously, to get to a point where she was really needed to come to Portland. Again, she lived in New York. For the last test, she had to come to Portland. And so she came to Portland, stayed with her good friend who we know. And at that point, she reached out and said, hey, I'm Vicki. She contacted us by email and said, I just want you to know. I found out about you through your friend. And um, I've been getting tested. I have one more test. I'm going to do it in Portland, and I'd love to meet you. And so that was about, I don't know, eight to ten weeks before the actual transplant um, so she had to go through these final tests. She waited a couple weeks to get the results. She qualified. She called me. We cried. And uh, I <laughs> basically said, I'm ready to do this whenever you are. And she was on board with that. And so really it was just a function of calling the doctors and saying, when is the first day we can do this? And that's what we did. So that was about two months after that. And for Vicki, all of her medical expenses were covered by insurance or Medicare. We don't have to get into the details, but just so people understand that, that's accurate, correct? Yeah, her medical costs. I mean, I don't, I don't think her flight to Portland was covered, but all of someone's medical bills and for all of these tests that I just described and everything else are either covered by the recipient's insurance company, my private health insurance, or by Medicare. Right. So she paid no out-of-pocket for any of the tests, or actually for the transplant surgery itself and any follow-up work. All of it, from start to finish, is paid for by somebody else. So in that sense, it's really easy if you just look at it from a financial perspective. It's obviously different when you look at it from having surgery and things like that. That's a pretty important thing. Many people just assume it's going to cost them a fortune to even consider doing something like this, and it just doesn't. That's helpful, Mike. So you showed up for surgery. You showed up the same day. Her surgery started first, right? And then after they got her kidney out, your surgery started? Yeah. So, yes. Now, that sequence happened, but it was very, it was almost simultaneous. Um, obviously, one has to happen first because they have to get the kidney out of the living donor. 
but we both got wheeled into the operating rooms at the same time and prepped at the same time and things like that. And so first they do the surgery on the donor um, and they remove the kidney and then they basically wheel it into another room on ice and give it to the recipient in a different surgery. So in this sense, a living donation can be. It doesn't have to be like this. It can actually happen in a much different way for someone who's not in the same city or in the same hospital. That can also happen. And they just fly the kidney. In this situation, we happen to be in the same hospital. So in that sense, it's very different than a non-living donation where someone has died and they've been willing to donate their organs. That can happen anywhere in, say, the state of Oregon. And they will do the process of removing the organ, the kidney, and flying it or driving it or doing whatever it is they have to do to get it to the recipient's hospital. So it doesn't always happen in that close sequence, but that's always the sequence. Right. Removed from the donor first and then given to the recipient. What was it like to wake up with a new kidney? Obviously, you had some recovery time, but it's been over three years. How are you? Sort of the, the, the what was it like idea has sort of, I mean, there's probably a lot of facets to it, but there's two that are sort of the biggest in my mind. Uh, one of them is purely a health thing. I think you have to kind of go through the process to be able to understand this. You feel different. You're, you've just come through surgery. I'm in intensive care. I was in intensive care for two days, obviously in pain, all these other things from a major surgery. But you can tell the moment you wake up that you feel different. So when your kidneys reach a point where they don't work, your body starts to function very differently. So I was taking naps in the middle of the day. I couldn't stay up late. I was just very tired. All of, and, and that was aggregating for me over a period of time. So I actually didn't really know the magnitude of it fully. Uh, all of that ends effectively instantly the moment the kidneys in your body. And the second you wake up, it doesn't matter how I don't, you know, I was on all sorts of medications and drugs and in pain. You can feel it instantly. It was, it's incredible. That is amazing. And the doctors tell you that in advance. They say, you're not going to believe what it's going to be like. And it's true. And so from a health perspective, it was amazing instantly. Continues to be amazing today. I'm doing well. I take immunosuppressant meds to prevent rejection every day. Those have some minor side effects that I live with. But for the most part, if you saw me, you would have no idea that I ever had a transplant. And I have zero limitations on my lifestyle from the transplant. I mentioned there are kind of two big facets of how I felt or how I feel. The other ones are emotional or psychological or some other thing around the somewhat miraculous aspect of this, that someone has given part of their body to you to keep you alive is something I still think about. Probably, I definitely thought about it every day for years. I'm now three and a half years out. I still think about it every day, I think. Um, it, it's still hard to believe. I, 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 the magnitude of it is amazing, and I don't know how else to put it. Yeah, it's incredible. It's a miracle, and it's just amazing, and I feel special and lucky. Mike, I know that you and your family are still, and, and I, are still in touch with Vicki. She's not going to speak on this podcast, but I think because uh, she is, is, a, is a private person, but I think you have some sense about how she feels about having done this and how she's doing. Can you just share a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, well, first of all, she is happy and healthy. So from a health perspective on her side, um, she had a surgery. She recovered in the hospital for three or four days, uh, had another few weeks, three, four weeks of recovery, and then started living her life again as uh, normal. And she's been healthy ever since. Um, so she's had no health repercussions from donating at all. 
separately for herself, having done this, uh, the, the best way I can summarize how she feels uh, is that she says every time we see her, she would do it again if she could. Um, so for her, it was extremely rewarding. Also, I mean, she probably would say the same thing I said. She feels lucky and special. I know that sounds strange because she's the one on the other side of this, but I think she would say that. And I know she says routinely she would do it again if she could. That's wonderful, Mike. Thanks so much for sharing that story. Of course, as your sister, uh, and, and I guess if, even if I weren't your sister, I'm really happy that you're doing well. Is there anything else we miss that you think people should know about this topic of considering a living kidney donation? Well, I would just say that this process is not an all-or-nothing proposition. In other words, if you're curious, if you think you might be willing to do it, it's very easy to, to ask questions. It's very easy to call the doctors. All this, the doctors who do this, the surgeons and the other people who are kidney doctors and the teams they have, at least the ones I was working with are incredible, first of all. Um, but they all have pretty strong support networks that go all the way to psychologists and things like that um, who are there as resources to both guide you through the process but also give you advice, thoughts, uh, information, things like that. So it's easy to get some information and understand the process. Another thing that's important to know is all of this can be done anonymously. In fact, actually, all of it is done anonymously by, I think, most transplant clinics. Most transplant clinics do not disclose to the potential recipient that they've been contacted by a potential donor. Those are all, it's all information protected by privacy laws. So I had no idea that people were in the background doing this when it was happening. The only reason I found out is that Vicki told us she voluntarily identified herself. She didn't have to. She actually could have done the donation without me even knowing who she was. And so I mention all that only because I want for people to know that they actually can sort of begin the process and back out whenever they want. They can begin the process solely for the purpose of finding out information to see if they're comfortable with it and see how they feel about it and learn about it without committing to anything. And the person on the other side, the potential recipient, won't ever know about it. Okay. Um, I found out about a couple people for reasons that had nothing to do with what I just said. Again, Vicki voluntarily disclosed herself. Right. And that's true for even a family member, right? So just know that you're able to begin this process if you want, and there's no real cost to you when it comes to your relationship with the potential recipient or anything like that if you decide to change your mind. Mike, that's really helpful. I'm glad you pointed those things out. Another person on this podcast is an altruistic donor who was totally anonymous and has no idea where her kidney landed in a kidney chain. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and your reactions to this process, Mike. It's awesome to talk to you as always. All right. And just so you know, and whoever's listening to this knows, you can find me through Sue. I'll be happy to talk to anyone about this instantly. Great. Thank you, Mike. All right. Thank you. Well, it's always great to have a chance to talk to your brother on your podcast. And that's, as I said, the first of three episodes on Real Leaders Focus on Living Kidney Donation. As always, the Real Leaders Podcast is sponsored by Leadership Camp. If you or a leader you know wants to become a more authentic, effective, and happy leader, find out more about Leadership Camp at www.leadership.camp. And we'll see you next time on the Real Leaders Podcast. <laughs>